Uh, so welcome again to the second part of this Office Bearers Conference. Last night we had a, a look at uh, general characteristics of office bearers and what that means and how we can prepare ourselves and our loved ones for the office and give them support in that. Uh, today we're going to look more at the being prepared to serve as an elder, uh, including some uh, case studies as well. Reverend Slump will be uh, giving the speech this morning. And um, afterwards there'll be time for, for questions, so please feel free to write down your questions uh, as he's speaking and then after we'll give time for you to ask uh, specific questions. Uh, he asked me to begin with the reading of Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. And we're going to read that together. There's a Bible pew in front of you, Joshua 1, verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I'll pray. Almighty and gracious God, we thank you for the promise that we could read together that you are with us wherever we go. We thank you that we may experience this nearness as we open your word, as we hear you speak to us through this word, as we also recognize that as we walk along in our journey, in our Christian journey, we may speak to you that you are a God who inclines your ear. You bend down to hear us. You pay attention to our situation. You care. You love us. We ask, Father, that as we look at the office of elder this morning and afterwards the office of deacon, that you will bless our time together, bless our fellowship, bless Reverend Slump, Reverend Vanderward, as they are presenting topics, leading us in our thoughts and in our study. And Father, we pray that above all your name, 
may be glorified and honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last night, uh, and then again this morning, uh, one thing that is overwhelming to see is that, again, there's men, uh, women from many different congregations, Reformed churches, and Reformed and Presbyterian churches, and Central. Is, is Nearlandia still Central, or is it Northern Alberta? Where is the, it's on the line. Uh, from Central Alberta to the uttermost Northern limit of that. Um, but Reformed churches uh, and, and men and women gathering together. And last night and then again this morning, there's some new faces this morning. Uh, it's, it's overwhelming to think, uh, if you just think about all those men uh, and, and women, families, uh, raising their children, guiding their congregations in the ways of the Lord, uh, pointing to Jesus Christ. It's an, it's an overwhelming thought. And then if you add up all the, the pastoral hours that are represented in a meeting like this, uh, we have lots to, to praise God for, lots to give thanks to God for, and, and that's uh, the prayer that this can equip us as churches in all our different circumstances uh, for a long time. So with that, I invite uh, forward Reverend Bill Slump. Um, my one question is in his email, it's Willem, but whenever I talk to him, it's Bill, so I never know what to, to do when I introduce him. And I'm still a minister, too. He said former reverend. Did I say former? <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a to, to be anyway, the fully last I heard, unless there's something that I don't know. <laughs> he's a pastor of this congregation, Pastor Emeritus. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for organizing this. It's wonderful to be able to reflect together on the task of elder. I've been asked to speak about the task of elder and their pastoral care. What is his mandate? What is his task? And that in itself is a big topic. Uh, in that connection, I've also been asked to give some advice on how best to deal pastorally with some common struggles among memberships, such as people with mental disorders, anxiety, depression, relationships, sexual orientation struggles, gender dysphoria, and addictions, and also how can office bears best deal with couples who have separated and are contemplating divorce? Do single people need special attention? If so, what? And finally, I've been asked to speak about what is an appropriate pastoral response to people who insist that it is sufficient to only come to one worship service on the Sunday when the consistory calls them to two. So that's quite a bit. Obviously, these are things that must have come across on the um, council room of the uh, Emmanuel Church. And uh, like I said, there's quite a bit of material. So as I prepared for this, I thought, well, how do I tackle this? I can give some specific advice and in some specific situations, but how well, how helpful would that be? There are always so many aspects to the various problems that elders have to deal with, and no situation is the same. And so I thought it best to first give an important basic principle that should guide you in all this. The 
principle that will help you in dealing with those who face all kinds of difficulties as they try to fight the good fight of the faith. It's a fight that we all have in common against our own sworn enemies, namely the devil, the world, and our own flesh. If you're not putting up a good fight against those three enemies in your own life, then you cannot be an effective office bearer in the church of God. And so what does that look like? Well, that's why we read together from Joshua 1, which has an important message for the leaders in the church. Joshua is about to embark on a difficult task. Moses is dead, and now he must lead God's people into the promised land. There is a lot to do. There are many obstacles in the way. The enemies that they face are daunting, and so are the many other obstacles. They seem insurmountable. There are rivers to cross, walls to knock down, cities to conquer, and armies to defeat. Some of the people are depressed because of this. They think, how are we going to do this? They see the difficult task ahead, and they feel vulnerable. It sets them on an uncertain journey. And in facing their enemy, they could even lose their life. And furthermore, they do not just have to fight the enemy without, but also within. The way the people conducted themselves in their desert wanderings showed that they were often at odds with each other. They fought and they sowed discord amongst themselves. They bickered and complained. And no doubt it's not going to be any different from here on in. That's a lot to deal with, isn't it? Especially for the leadership. The task before them, humanly speaking, is next to impossible. And so what kind of instruction does the Lord God give to Joshua and to the leaders of the people of Israel? Well, what does he tell them? He tells them to be strong and courageous. And he says, to that, says that to them no less than three times. Be strong, be courageous. And brothers, that's also what God says to each and every office bearer who must carry out his task, to you and to me. Have courage. For there are many challenges that face us today. We live in a world that is increasingly hostile to God and his people. Are we going to lose our freedom? Will we lose our comfortable existence? What kind of future do our children face? And there are many things that are unsettling to us personally. And within the walls of the church of today, there are also often conflicts and strife. We have disagreements about all kinds of things all the time, about liturgical changes, about maintaining the status quo, about what it means to belong to a federation of churches, and there are difficult people to deal with. The devil is always busy trying to divide us 
and to have us fight our little battles so that we can lose the war. Because of sin and the devil, we lead a precarious existence if it weren't for the fact that God is with us. And so what do you do? Well, the form for the ordination of elders and deacons says elders are to fulfill their duties by caring for the flock and defending the sheep against dangers that threaten them. And so an office bearer is to be a leader who leads the charge against the enemies. And therefore, he must be someone who is unafraid of the enemies that he is facing. He, of all people, must have courage. Without courage, you cannot be a leader in God's church. Cowards do great damage in the kingdom of God. But what is courage? Some people think that courage is telling it the way it is. It is not compromising on your principles. You let your voice be heard when things go wrong and let the chips fall where they may. Some truth to that, as long as you do it for the right reasons. Alas, that's not always the case. Too often it's not. Sometimes you hear the comment, so-and-so, well, he is a real straight shooter. He's not afraid to shake things up. He's not a coward like some of the other men in the council room who are afraid. That's the kind of guy we need. And they usually say that about that so-called straight shooter because he has the same kind of agenda that they have and don't dare to be bold themselves. But what exactly is a straight shooter? Who is a true fighter for the truth? What does he look like? Well, people who are known as such straight shooters are often people who are very good at pointing fingers at others, but very poor at putting, pointing fingers at themselves. They can see the dangers everywhere. The church is going to pot. Who knows what's going to happen? Look at this and look at that. They can see all dangers. And they love to deal with the sins of others. They will tell them how they must live their lives and how they can be successful like them. But when it comes to their own sinful lives, they're silent. When you point out their sins and shortcomings, they will turn the table on you and pound out your fault. They're blind guides because they're blind their own sins. What is the biggest problem? The biggest problem with such an approach is that there is no love in it. One of the most important qualities of the office bearer is to have love. To have a love for God because he has saved you from your sins and a love for God's people because they too are forgiven sinners. It's not hard to point out wrongs, but in the end it will make you bitter and angry. Let me tell you about one such courageous individual of the 20th century who started out that way. 
about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We can learn a lot from his story. I think most of you know who he is. He was born in Russia in 1918, six months after the Bolshevik Revolution. During his formative years, he was brainwashed by the communist state education system, which taught him that socialism is good and just, and that religion is the enemy of the people. And as a result, Solzhenitsyn became an atheist and joined the Communist Party. During the Second World War, he served in the Soviet Army and witnessed cold-blooded murder and the raping of women and children as the Red Army took its revenge on the Germans. That greatly dismayed him. And so he criticized the power that be, including Joseph Stalin. As a result, he was sent to prison for eight years as a political dissident because of the kind of treatment that he and others received while in prison. He began to loathe the communist regime and the lackeys that did its bidding. And consequently, he exposed the Soviet system even more, the horrors of it. He dedicated himself to expose the monstrous Soviet regime that had, as he discovered later, later murdered and incarcerated millions like himself. In 1973, his polemical masterpiece, The Gulag Archipelago, was published in the West. It made such an impact that it was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. But why was he so scathing in his remarks? Well, initially because of disgust, because of anger at the injustices, because of the wrongness of it all. However, this only made him full of despair and hopelessness and anger. In the end, he couldn't stand it anymore. But then something remarkable happened. During his stay in the prison hospital while he was suffering from cancer, he met a Jew, a doctor, Boris Cornfield. This man had become converted to Christianity and his story led to his conversion. Because this man was a doctor and of use to his captors, he had been given preferential treatment. In order to survive, Cornfield became complicit in the way that prisoners were arbitrarily punished and put to death. And that greatly bothered him. He became disgusted with himself. And because of his contact with, uh, with devout Christians in the Gulag, he learned of a Jewish Messiah who had suffered and died for the sins of others and who promised that a new kingdom of peace would come. Eventually, this doctor became a Christian. He came to see what a sinful man he himself was by having cooperated with that evil regime. Ultimately, he realized that he was not really any better than his captors. And he now also realized what a wretched sinner, what a wretched man he himself was because of his own sin. And through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he found forgiveness and he found peace. After his conversion, he no longer cooperated with his torturers, and he knew that that would cost his life. Through this man's testimony, who spoke to Solzhenitsyn, 
very regularly tell him his story and right after the day that he died he was bludgeoned to death then Solzhenitsyn also became converted and now Solzhenitsyn realized for himself too what a sinner he was in the final analysis he is not any different than those cruel guards either and from all those who meant him harm. He also came to the realization that every single human being stands guilty before God and deserves to be punished. He now understood that suffering is the result of sin, not somebody else's sin, but your own sin. That, brothers, takes courage. It takes courage to examine your own life and to realize what a wretched man you are. To realize that you are not any better than anybody else. It means total self-denial and a humbling yourself before God and throwing yourself at his mercy. And when you do that, you know that you are forgiven and that God, that God loves you in spite of your sins. There is no greater joy than to know about the love of God for yourself and also for others who put their trust in him. Love, as you hear every Sunday, is the fulfillment of the law. And now I come to the point. If you want to be an effective office bearer, office bearer then you have to have a great love for the fact that God has saved you in spite of your sins and that he has given you a wonderful inheritance. It is an inheritance that you may share with those whom God has put into your charge. If God can love you, a wretched sinner, you can also love others who are just as great a sinner as you are. You're not any better than anybody else. That's the message of the gospel. And that's the approach we need to take with those who are hurting. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ totally sacrificed himself so that we can escape sin and the devil and all the wretchedness of our sinful condition. He has given us hope and a future and a life. There's no greater joy than that, is there? And that, brothers, is one of the basic principles that should guide you in your task as deacon or elder to know your sins and to be joyful in your, in your own salvation. It is only in that knowledge that you can be of help to others. All the other skills that you need, they all fall by the wayside. And that's also what motivated Paul. He also humbled himself before God and he confessed himself to be the worst of all sinners. He was unafraid to look at himself in the worst possible light. He could do that because he also knew that God loved him and forgave him 
for all his sins. He was a murderer. He persecuted the church. Yet, in spite of that knowledge and in spite of the remorse that he had, he had great joy. It's that joy that we have to pass on to others. For how did Paul also conduct himself in his ministry? It's a good example for us. Well, he now used his newfound courage to be unafraid in whatever evil he encountered. He was fully assured of his salvation and knew that nothing ultimately could harm him. He understood what it meant when Jesus said that if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. Once you grasp that, once you grasp that for yourself, then everything else that you have here on earth becomes secondary. Paul was a man full of compassion. He was unafraid to tell the truth in love. He says in Acts 20, verse 31, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Brothers, it is the task of an office bearer to be an example of godliness and humility and to display in his walk and talk how joyful it is to be a child of God. There's nothing more powerful than that. An office bearer must inspire others to be unafraid in the midst of adversity. He must inspire others not to be attached to earthly goods or to earthly reputations or anything that smacks of self-promotion. The office of elder is unique. He is a leader in the church. As such, he comes with the authority of his commander, the Lord, his God. In that sense, he is different from those who hold the office of all believers as prophet, priest, and king. An elder holds the keys of the kingdom. And when somebody goes astray, then he calls them back to faithfulness in love with tears. He calls for wisdom, for understanding, and for a thorough knowledge of Scripture. It is, as Reverend Prince Bronson also mentioned last night, for that reason that the office bearers must train themselves in godliness and diligently search the scriptures, as it also says in the form for the ordination of deacons and elders, to diligently search the scriptures which are profitable in every respect that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. God also said to Joshua to meditate on the scriptures. The wonderful thing is that the office bearer comes with authority as a leader. He must have authority. He must know what direction he is going and what direction the church needs to go. And he comes with the authority of Christ. If he knows the scripture, if he applies the scripture. And we must be like Christ in every respect. 
For if there was anybody who was ever courageous, if there was anybody who was unafraid, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he was shaken to his core as he prayed to his Father in heaven that, that journey he had to go on, that he would not have to do it, but he knew he would, and he was able to, because he knew that that is the only way that we can gain glory. He also showed his anger and his wrath against those who did not heed his voice. He was patient with people. He was very kind. He was very compassionate. But he was also very scathing sometimes in his attacks. The Lord Jesus calls out for discipline, self-discipline, mutual discipline, and church discipline. In other words, discipline meted out by the elders who rule in his name. That's why we have been given the keys of the kingdom. As the form says, elders have to fulfill their duties by reminding God's people of his ordinances and by exercising discipline over the disobedient. But now, how do you work all this out? Because now I've kind of laid the basis, the most important points. How do you work that out in some of these specific situations that I mentioned? Well, it's first of all important to realize that it does not depend on your skill how to help others. We're all flawed in so many ways. Certainly know I am. I realize my flaws all the time and a lot of flaws that I don't even realize. Who has all the skills? Even the most learned and experienced psychologists and psychiatrists don't have the skills. It's not so much the skills that you have, but it is about the relationship that you have with God and with your fellow man. That's what's important. What kind of relationship is that? It's a relationship of love. And love covers a multitude of sins. And so after all this, let's take a look at how to deal with somebody who is depressed and full of anxiety. And that will take longer than some of the other ones because this is a big one. We encounter people with depression quite a lot, especially nowadays. So let me deal with that a little bit more extensively. If you know yourself to be a saved sinner, then you approach a depressed person with compassion and understanding, with humility, with love. You try to help someone with depression to help them put things into a proper perspective. Depressed people overthink. They often are navel gazers. And you have to help them understand that the mental agony that they experience, which is very, very real, that that is the result of a sinful world in which we live. And you help them understand that for a Christian, there's always hope, even if they don't see it. 
It is important for a depressed person to know that the depression did not come about because of some specific sin. Can be, of course, but that's rarely the case. You don't do them any favors if you try to find out what sin caused the depression. You do an enormous amount of damage when you do that. That's how the friends of Job conducted themselves. They were just trying to dig for Job's sins as to find out why this happened to him. There are many things that play a role. Sometimes we don't understand it. We don't get, we don't have enough time to dig into and in all this. Not a speech about depression as such. But I do want to give you some pointers that I gave in a lengthy speech some time ago on this topic to a women's conference. First thing to know is that a depressed person needs people around him or her. You can't leave them in a dark room by themselves with the curtains drawn. An office bearer should make sure that there is a support system in place. Find out, are there friends and relatives who are able to give support? And make sure that those friends and relatives are available to be there as much as possible. Somebody who suffers from postpartum depression, for example, uh, can go through some very dark times, and it can be very dangerous times for them. They can harm themselves. They can even harm their own children because of that kind of depression. And then they always need to have somebody with them. And the church community and the office bearers should make sure of that. The church community should make sure that there are people to help them, even if it's just to sit with them, just to show them they care. Uh, lately, we hear a lot about involving women in some official capacity in the church. And some think that, that women can only be of use if they are called to the office of elder or deacon. Well, uh, that's a whole separate topic, but that's not what God has ordained in the church. But he does use women in the church in numerous ways, and they have a very important function. The scriptures are full of example of the way that women are used in the church. Without godly women in the church, this church wouldn't exist. Women are nurturers. Caregiving comes more natural to them than to men, and so involve them. They have so much to give in the church of God. Make sure that they're there to help those who are depressed. Elders and deacons should know how to involve the various members of the church. Everybody has a gift. It's also the office bearer's duty to train others. Some will be more able to train others than others are, but at least an elder can make sure that this training does take place, that people are equipped to help others, equipped properly. It's got to be done from the pulpit too, in a general way. But also, 
in, in other ways. When you're dealing with somebody who is seriously depressed, make sure that a support group is in place. The most important skill is the ability to listen. Jeff Sponson mentioned already that. It's a good thing he did because it bears repeating and maybe even expanding on a little bit. Some people, I hear that, they will say that to me sometimes, they're afraid to become an office bearer because, well, I'm not, I'm not a good talker. I, you know, I don't know whether or not I have the right qualifications. I don't always know what to say, they tell me. However, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's much better to be able to listen than to be able to talk, to be a good listener instead. After all, God gave us two ears and one mouth. To be a good listener is difficult for all of us. I did a degree in social work. The main thing they teach you is how to listen to another person. And you know what? I'm 70 years old and I'm still learning and I still think sometimes, Bill, you really blew it again. You weren't listening. Okay? So it's hard. It's hard for us. But we have to be aware what listening is about. Uh, especially when you have to listen to a depressed person who typically doesn't say a lot. Then it's easier to break the eyes and to try to come up with some words to say something to try to make the person feel better. Don't resist the temptation. Restrain yourself. For those are usually tense situation, and during tense situation, we will say certain things that are not necessarily helpful or can even be hurtful. Um, don't think that there are some magic words. People like to have magic words that will, you know, uh, make things better. There's no such thing as magic words. Uh, a depressed person needs to be able to talk about what ails her. I say her because it's usually women more than men, but men too. Um, you gotta, you got to get them to talk. Um, Listening is important. Um, do you know what hell is? Hell is that nobody cares, that nobody listens to you. We know that God listens to us. For example, David says in Psalm 4, verse 3, The Lord will hear when I call to him. He gives ear to our sighing and listens to our cry for help. It says in Psalm 5. That's to say, he doesn't just listen to what we say. No. He observes the whole person. He hears our grunts, our sighing, and our moaning. He sees our downtrodden faces. He looks at our whole disposition. He hears more, a lot more, than just words. And that's something we have to try as well, is to listen to the whole person. Usually when people think about the art of listening, they think of someone lying back in a relaxed way with his eyes intently fixed on the person in front of him, and they think that it is a very passive activity. 
But listening is much more involved than that. It is a very active process. Listening, trying to understand someone else, begins already before you meet eye to eye with the person. You don't think about what you are going to say, but about what the other person might say, about what his or her situation is, about the kind of person you are dealing with, what kind of needs they may have, what kind of support system they may have, and how you should respond to that. Hendricks, in his book, Als Huisverzorger Gods, says, to listen is a very active, creative activity, is a very creative activity. Whoever really knows how to listen, in a sense, opens the person up and makes it possible for that person to speak. Such listen does not only presuppose what another says in words, but it is a listening to what lies behind those words. There must be a sensitivity to those things which are not expressed in words, but which resonates, that may cling, that resonates along with the words. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. And James says in chapter 1, verse 19, My brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. You could paraphrase that as follows. Let everyone be a ready listener. And as you listen, it is important throughout to be empathetic. Empathy is different from sympathy. The word sympathy conjures up pity. People don't want pity. That's the last thing they want. They don't want to feel looked down upon. They don't want to feel as if they are an object of derision. No, they want you to enter their pain. And the only way you can do that is by learning the art of listening. For example, people who are depressed often have many feelings of guilt. And it could be just some little thing. They may, for instance, feel guilty about something they said or did to another person. And not that many confide in you and give you those intimate details. How do you react to that? How do you enter the pain that they experience? It's easy when they tell you something like that. It's easy for us to brush it off and say to them, oh, don't worry. That's often what we do because we don't want them to be talking about something negative like that. And therefore, we'll quickly say something like, well, I'm sure and sure that so-and-so has Allah already totally forgiven you. Or I'm sure it's not a big deal. That's not the point. The fact of the matter is that the depressed person is bothered by it. You don't just brush something off like that and tell them that they should forgive themselves for what they did and then go on with other things. No, it's never helpful when you do that. 
if you, they tell you something that bothers them, then you should allow them to speak about it, to try to understand why they feel that the way that they do. I liked it when Reverend Bronson last night used the example of, of, of children. Um, little kids, they got a little problem, but that's a big deal to them. And as parents, well, we know we got to listen to them, right? That's important. Oh, you lost your whatever wheel of your little dinky toy. Yeah, you know, you know, it's ah, stupid little toy. Who cares about that? No, you don't. Or anything else. Also, when they're teenagers, oh, what a pimple here. You know, oh. Uh, you, you don't just brush that off. That, that's a big deal. That's a big deal to a, a teenager, okay? So just because it isn't important to you doesn't mean it's important to the other person. So take people seriously. Enter their pain. Listen to them. And there is a reason why they're telling you something that they had, that they, something that they had done wrong. There's a reason they want to get something off of their, che- off their chest. Otherwise, he or she wouldn't be telling you. Well, that's not an easy thing to do. They need you to help them to put things into a proper perspective. And you can only know that if you know the details. They can also be telling you about some past indiscretion because they know that whatever it is is about to come out into the open. And they want you to have a heads up. But if you then right away dismiss their concern, they may hold that against you later. And then when it comes out into the open, they can say, well, I already told the elder about it, and he didn't think it was such a big deal. Why do you think it's such a big deal? Right? Well, it could be a very big deal. Uh, it could be that somebody like that has, something, has done something illegal or terribly immoral and that it needs to be dealt with thoroughly, perhaps also through the secular authorities, and perhaps also further through the office bearers, especially if it is something that he has as a habit to do. Such a habit needs to be broken. So when people tell you something, you should try to understand what they're saying. And then repeat, as Bronson said, Bronson said last night, repeat what they said in other words by paraphrasing. For example, when someone says, well, I don't think that other people like me very much. I don't even get elected as an elder. And then you can ask, well, so you think that people don't like you? And Define terms. Ask questions. Why do you feel that way? What indications have you had that people have they rejected you or, you know? So find out. See what's going on. And don't think about what you have to say, but think about what the other person is saying. Also be careful what you say especially to a depressed person. Don't say the wrong things. Don't say to the depressed person, for example, pull yourself together. That's not helpful. That's actually judgmental. 
or I know exactly what you're going through. I hate that when people say that. You don't. You never know. Each person is unique, and every person's situation is different. It may seem like yours, but it, it necessarily isn't. And even if it is exactly like yours, then you're kind of dismissing it. Well, it's not a big deal. Look at me, right? So be careful what you say. Um, or, you can, or don't say, well, you've got nothing to be depressed about. Look at all the things you've got going for you. You should be thankful. They already know that. They're trying very hard to be thankful. And that's what makes them even more depressed because they aren't. How come I can't? Or say, you should pray more. Chances are that that person is on his or her knees all day long. And you only make that person feel guilty, more guilty, by making her think that she doesn't pray enough or well enough and that it must be her fault that she feels the way she does. Or you should confess your sins. Talked about that briefly a moment ago. Then you sound like the friends of Job. They thought that his depression came about because of his sins. Nothing was farther from the truth. So in general, don't say things that will add to the guilt that the person already feels and that will add to their feelings of inadequacy. Don't be afraid of silences. Don't be afraid just to be there. Often, you, when you come also, you know, there's another thing with mourning. We don't deal with that. But often people don't remember what you say. They just remember that you were there, that you brought a meal, and that you said a kind word. I feel for you. I wish I could do something to make you feel better. How can I help you? They remember those kinds of gestures, not if you come with all kinds of um, wise sayings, wise saying in your own eyes, or scripture passages. Not that you shouldn't come with scripture passages, of course not. But that's not going to be the thing that is going to help them at that moment. And perhaps you're wondering, well, what about professional counseling? Now, that's a whole topic in itself. I, I've held speeches on that as well. Um, so I have to, but I have to be uh, brief here. Uh, I read that the average depression lasts about 40 days. Depressions come in various degrees. Someone who is deeply depressed may need outside counseling. And so you may need to refer such a person to a good Christian counselor. But it is important always that the elder is involved in one way or the other. Even if it's only just in the background to check up on things, to make sure that the counselor is not taking them in the wrong direction, to make sure that you are there, that the person knows that you're there for them, that you care, that you love them. Just because they go and see somebody doesn't mean, okay, I'm done. That's it. Next case. Oh. Ultimately, professional counselor cannot replace a good and trusted friend. 
counselor cannot see a depressed person all the hours of the day. Um, we can um, trust the people around them. Um, they can come at any time. When my daughter went through her depression, she had with a postpartum, um, she could call on, on, on certain people at any time, even in the middle of the night, and, and they were there. Can you imagine the council doing that? Forget it. You know, you come at that, at that time, and uh, okay, give me 100 bucks or 200 bucks, please, and there you go. Uh, I, I'm not a, a great proponent. I'm not dismissing counseling, the counseling profession, not at all. But I see a lot of limitations in it, okay? Um, so, <coughs> um, and I say, you know, have a trusted friend. Um, that means someone who is able to keep confidences. Again, that bears repeating. Reverend Swanson also mentioned that last night. Confidentiality is essential. Somebody who is depressed feels ashamed. Typically, they don't want others to know, and that's why they stay away from them. And they certainly don't want others to know what they're thinking, because some of their thinking can be pretty awful. And so they want to be sure that you do not betray them. And for that reason, it may even take some time before they will confide in you. Oh, time is marching on. Recently, the Emanuel Church Council asked me to give an evaluation of a course to help depressed people that is being offered online by COBA Feldcamp. I've carefully looked at this course, and I've also passed it by my oldest son, who is a who has a PhD in psychology and who had two terms as an elder. And um, my impression is, and his impression too, that this course could be very valuable to some people. Um, Koba herself struggled with severe depression and throughout her battle, she searched out Christian and secular resources to help her. As a result of her struggle, she set up this course to help others. Now, I think this could be a valuable resource. But not everybody will be able to use it um, because there's a lot of work and there's a lot of commitment that you need to, um, to have for this. But I think you'll hear some more about that after the brothers have evaluated my evaluation about this and made a decision. It's important for elders to be informed. Keep in mind that the scriptures are the source of all knowledge. I cannot say that enough. And be immersed in Scripture. We are bombarded with all kinds of worldly ideas, especially when it comes to the area of counseling. And 95% of it is seriously flawed. You need to be immersed in scripture it is to begin all and end all brothers and so your own personal devotions are important uh, take out every time for every day to meditate on god's word don't be so impressed by psychologists and psychiatrists and professional counselors they can be of help in certain situations that's why i don't dismiss them but they often come at things from a totally different perspective than a Christian. The counseling movement was originally set up to be antithetical 
to Christianity. That's how Freud started out. He took it away from the church. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop with that because, like I said, there could be a lot more said about that. But know the scriptures. Know what it means to be a covenant child of God. Know the kind of God that you have. He is a God full of compassion and understanding and patience. He is a God, as Joshua also said, or as the Lord also says to Joshua, He is a God who will never, ever abandon you. Isn't that wonderful? That's the kind of message you can give also to a depressed person. He will never abandon you. You may think you have all kinds of sins no matter what. God will not give up on you. He is your God. You are his child. And as you study the, the, the scriptures, also listen and read other men, explainers of scriptures. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Nowadays, there is so much material available on the internet, on the radio. There's radio programs, you know. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And then last, and certainly not least, pray. Pray for wisdom and understanding. Pray with the person and for the person. Read the scriptures together. Sing songs together. That's uplifting. That's how you chase away the devil. Depressed people are full of pain. They suffer. And remember, the Bible has much to say about suffering. It describes the suffering of God's children and also those with, who suffer from depression. Elijah... Saul, Jeremiah, and Jonah are examples. James says in chapter 1, verse 2 and following, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops, develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This may sound strange in your ears, but there is a positive side to the suffering from depression. It gives you a different perspective on life. You are made to set aside all that is dear and near to you. A depressed person doesn't care about anything else except their pain. And when you are deeply depressed and you're full of questions, and then you are also stripped bare of your dignity, and then you are forced to look at God. And come to him for answers. And that's what an office bearer has to do to help them see God. Very foggy outside. We don't see the sun. Does it mean that the sun isn't there? Yeah, the sun is there. So it may be very cloudy for the person. And they may think God isn't there, but he is there. He's always there. He will never abandon you. And God puts us sometimes in a situation like that. Not to hurt us but to glorify him and thereby also to glorify ourselves. Through suffering, we come to share in the glory that we have received from the Father. And therefore, to go through that journey which brings you to look at God's face and to help someone go through that journey is a privilege. You have a wonderful task, brothers. It says in Hebrews 2, verse 10 about the Lord Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. The Lord Jesus was made perfect through suffering, and he wants to make us 
perfect too. Thankfully, nobody has to suffer like he did, not even close. And when we suffer, we can call upon him for help. And we can also be instruments in God's hands to be there for those who suffer in this way. During his greatest agony on earth, on earth, the Lord Jesus had nobody to call upon, not even his Father in heaven. We can't even begin to realize what that was like. Yet our suffering is designed to bring us closer to our Lord and Savior. It's a great privilege to be an office bearer in the church of God. Being an office bearer is more important than any other public function. There is no greater task than to help people connect with God. I was also asked to speak about those with sexual orientation, struggles, and addictions. I'll be brief because time is marching on. The question is, why do people have these conditions? Some will tell you that they're born that way. They can't help it. But what does the Lord say to Joshua? He says in chapter 1 verse 7, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. We can be full of compassion and understanding for people who have these kinds of sexual struggles. Indeed, my heart goes out to those people who struggle with their sexual identity and with their sexual addictions. But no matter what, brothers, God's laws stand. And an office bearer is to apply God's laws. There can be no exceptions. As most of you know, I have a son who was born with a disorder known as Prader-Willi syndrome. The main problem for those born with PWS is that they are obsessed with food. They were born brain damaged. Because of a problem with the 15th chromosome, the hypothalamus does not function the way it should. And it causes them to think about food all the time. They also have behavioral issues and there are many other kinds of issues, but that's the main problem. Their thinking processes have been impaired. Now then, if I were to use my son's genetic disorder as an excuse for his behavior, then I would be doing wrong. For we have to look at what the scriptures say. The scriptures hold us responsible for our actions. Just because my son has an obsession with food doesn't mean that he is now allowed to eat whatever he wants whenever he wants, and that he is allowed to steal food. And ultimately, Joel doesn't want to do that either. He's a committed Christian. He knows right from wrong. Nevertheless, he has a great struggle, and he wants us to help him. His condition does help me to understand why he acts the way that he does. And it makes me also want to help him and able to help him in whatever way I can. It makes me want to keep him safe. It makes me want to fight for him and with him. And I will never give up on that. In spite of his weaknesses, Joel is a precious child of God 
and he is my precious child. And the same principle holds true for homosexuality and other sexual orientations. As office bearers, we should do everything to try to understand them and to see where they're coming from. Just because they have a certain inclinations, which may be totally alien to us, does not mean that we now should throw them under the bus. No, we have to help them with their struggles. How do we do that? Again, by being compassionate, by loving them, by listening to them, by trying to understand what their struggles are, by being patient with them, but at the same time to direct them to what the scriptures say. It's a very good book to help you in this. The book is called Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. Rosaria Butterfield has also written a lot to help us understand how to help these kinds of people with, as compassionate Christians, you need to be informed. The office bearer have a unique task in all this. They also hold the keys of the kingdom, as I said before. In the end, you will have to call sin, sin. If there is no repentance, the doors of the kingdom are shut to them. Another topic that was asked to address is how office bearers can best deal with couples who have separated and are contemplating divorce. The problem of divorce and separation is becoming more and more prevalent in the church, reflecting what's happening in society. And again, God's laws must prevail. The Lord hates divorce. Divorce is permitted only in the case of adultery and abandonment. For the rest, divorce is never an option. And even though they may be separated for a while, because you always have to make sure that both parties are safe, reconciliation should always be the aim. Marriage is a covenant, and as such, it reflects the covenant that God has made with us. He is the groom, and we are the bride. Marriage partners are to love and to respect each other. And when you are dealing with broken relationships, there are many aspects that play a role. Again, use the same skills as you do skills as you do in other situations, namely humility, compassion, love. Understand that potentially you could be in the same situation as those who are going through difficulties in their relationships. You are just as sinful. I'm glad that God gave me my barb, because I don't know if I would have had a different partner, what it would be like. Uh, I just know that she is the one that, um, yeah, a wonderful wife. Um, sometimes uh, it's more difficult. Some people have more difficult things to deal with. But even then, the commands of God are there. And also remember, you could be that same person. You could be in that situation too. By the grace of God, here go any of us. And again, you have to understand what's going on. You have to listen. That means you have to listen to both sides. One of the biggest mistakes that anyone can make, especially an office bearer, is to take one side over against another. There are always two parties. And there's always fault on both sides. 
as soon as you take sides, then you have lost your effectiveness and credibility. As a matter of fact, then you will do more damage probably than good. So listen to both sides. Both sides must see you as being sympathetic or empathetic. The problem often is that the one party will make his or her case to his or her friends and relatives, and without hearing the other side, they will side with him. Because, well, he's my friend, he's my son, he's my brother. And the other partner will do the same thing with her support group. And so you've got two groups of people at odds with each other. But both sides need to be heard. Don't become part of the one group over against the other. And you need to hear them, if possible, in each other's presence so that the one can correct what the other is saying. It's not always possible to do that, but that's always my aim. Sometimes it can take a long time for the two warring parties to be reconciled enough that they can live together in relative peace and harmony. And therefore, again, I urge patience. Sometimes it's very hard to know who the guilty party is. Over time, that becomes clear. One thing that never works is to have couples work things out separately. Warring parties need to get together to talk things out. And they need an empathetic mediator to help them work things through. Sometimes professional counselors can be used, but too often counselors, even Christian ones, will easily throw in the towel and even counsel divorce. That's not an option for us. And finally, uh, coming to the end, I was asked to comment on what an appropriate pastor response is to people who insist that it's sufficient only to come once to one worship service on a Sunday when the consistory calls them to two. Again, it's important to listen to them and ask them why they're only coming once. There could be good reason for it. Some people are not well enough to come to both services or they have loved ones to take care of on part of the Sunday, so they can only come to one. That's the case with my wife and me. When I have a Sunday free and I'm not preaching anywhere, then I will only come here in the morning and in the afternoon. I will spend my time with our younger son, Stephen, in Touchmark, the long-term care facility where he's being taken care of, and there we will listen to a worship service together online. Or my wife does the same thing when I'm preaching elsewhere. So before you make a judgment, these are some practical things that you should be aware of first. Most often, people come only once because there is something going on in their own lives, something spiritual. It's usually a spiritual problem. Or it could be that their lives are not organized enough. That can be, for example, with single people who do not have a spouse or family to make sure that they come to church twice. It can also be that they find that the worship service is boring. During my retirement, retirement, I'm able to revisit some of my old sermons to see whether or not I can rewrite them and use them again somewhere else. And that's a humbling experience, brothers. Sometimes I will look at the sermon that I preached in the past and I think to myself, poor people. They have to listen to that. <laughs> it's so boring. There's a lot of theological language, and it doesn't engage the audience. And so I totally rewrite it, or I look for another one, or work on a, on a new one. 
it's my pleasant experience that the people in the pew are quite forgiving. They're kind, and they know that you can't come with a barn burner every time. Most people have made it a habit to come twice. It's such a good habit. Their Sunday does not seem complete if they can't be in church on a regular basis to hear the word, to sing with God's people, to engage one another, to be together. It's such a good habit. Wonderful. What else are you going to do? And so, what do you say to somebody who is not as faithful as he or she should be? That they should make it a habit like the rest of God's people. There is no better place to be when they're not there. They're missing out. Oh, sure, preachers aren't perfect, far from it. But that's also the way it is for the people in the pew. All the more reason to come to church, to rejoice together in the salvation that we have in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our sins. One thing I could suggest to the elders is that it might not be a bad idea to invite those who are once over on a Sunday for lunch. I know it's a sacrifice, but in uh, Canadian Reformed churches, I think some of the USCs, they have a longer period. But in our church, it's usually not too long between church services. And so it shouldn't be so hard to have people over. And then when you go to church, it would be very strange for you to go to church and they go off and go back to their home, right? So if you have them over, they got to come to church with you in the afternoon, right? So that's one way. And I also had to say something about single members. Do it with single members too. Is invite them over for lunch. Involve them. Um, include them. Single people are a great asset to the church. They're not as encumbered by family responsibilities and other material things. They should have more time to devote themselves to kingdom work. Encourage them to be involved. The church should look for ways of involving them. Often they're overlooked. Point out many things to them, what they have to offer. Encourage them in that way. Everybody has talents. Brothers, there are many other things I could have mentioned spoken long enough, perhaps in the question period I can elaborate on some of the things. In conclusion, let me say once again that there is no greater rewarding task than being an office bearer. It's greater than running a successful business. It's greater than being a famous academic or a renowned cook or whatever. Your office is greater than the office of the Prime Minister of Canada or the President of the United States. As an office bearer, you may be an instrument in God's hand to bring others to Christ, the Savior of the world, to be an instrument in God's hands to bring the peace that surpasses all understanding, to be someone who leads others to unimaginable treasures that will be there forever and ever and ever. What task on earth? is greater than that. Is there any office greater than that? No. Brothers, be faithful, be diligent, be thankful, and last of all, and not least of all, be full of love. Thank you. Hello.
thank you very much, uh, Reverend Slump. <clears throat> that was uh, very clear. You love, I love the, the emphasis on what courage is and uh, encouraging us to uh, inspire others to be unafraid by letting go of things on earth. I think it's a very, very beautiful picture that we can, we can work with. Uh, so, as you noticed, as uh, Reverend Slump was going through, he was uh, uh, anticipating many questions that were already sent ahead of time. So that moves us through the allotted time for question period uh, a little quicker. Uh, I would like to uh, take one question now. I'd also like to take any other texts that you have, and then at the end, if uh, we can work it in and if it hasn't been dealt with in another uh, setting, uh, then we'll ask Reverend Slump to come forward and, and answer that uh, question as well. So yeah, there's a, you can text uh, any questions throughout to that, and then I'll try to bring it in uh, at some time. So that's just my phone number, and um, that way I can uh, weed through your, your, your texts and, and uh, try to join stuff together. Who would like to ask the question before coffee time uh, right now? I think that the words spoken this morning were very, very beneficial to us, and I would really, and I really appreciate it. But as you were speaking, um, I've also been in a few difficult situations where, as an elder, you just feel you have your back up against the wall. And specific case that I mean with, you're dealing with a depressed person who is so depressed, they think they're a reprobate. And that's just about all I want to say, because you, my question is, how do you deal with that? They, they figure they're, they're a sinner, they're good for nothing, worthless, and all the other words put together, and they are, they think that this is it for them. And sometimes, of course, this can even lead to suicide yep. thankfully it's not the way with the ones that I've dealt with but I, you just feel that your backup is against the wall yeah. and I realize you're going to say well you can only come with the word but yeah. what what struck me really this morning was when you said that it's cloudy outside but the sun is shining yeah. and that is wonderful to know that and I fully believe that yeah. but to just come and say that to a person it's, it's so, I don't know, I struggle with it a little bit. Yeah. How do you? And yet, yeah. you have to love them. You emphasize that so much, and I agree with it so much. Yeah. What greater thing? That's exactly what Christ did. I would say, Thank Brother Vienga, is don't give up. Don't give up and visit regularly and, and keep in contact. And like I said, make sure there is a support group around there. Um, I, I once had it... Uh, a, a young man who was just married. He was very depressed, and his wife called me in desperation, and I came there, and she said, he's in the basement. The basement was very dark. I couldn't see. I had to crawl on my knees to get to um, his, his room, and uh, I had no idea what was on that floor. But anyway, I made it safe, and uh, I, I just talked to him. And, and just 
Just the fact that you're there, just the fact that you go and take that effort, that speaks volumes, okay? So, um, you know, you can ask questions and all that. Why? They, they're not talking. When they're at that state, they're not talking to you. They're not saying anything, right? Um, I know. But they do know when people care. And that's why there has to be people. You have to make sure that the person is safe, okay? And, and you can even ask them. I ask people, if I suspect that they are suicidal because you meant su mentioned suicide, I will ask them, are you thinking about that? We're afraid to do that because we think that we may trigger something. It's the, actually the opposite. Okay. Uh, are, are you thinking about that? And why? And, and what do you think will be the consequences if you do that? How is that going to help anybody? Right? You have to be careful. You can't be, you know, uh, jabbing him with that. But that's what you, so yeah, just be there. That's all you can do. Just be there and just love him. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you're gonna, you can text me that uh, other question, um, or we'll uh, uh, bring it and may hopefully can get to it later. So right now we're going to have uh, time for coffee and fellowship. I want to take advantage of the fact that we have uh, office bearers and family members and from all different uh, places here, uh, and it's good to uh, talk to one another, uh, talk to the speaker uh, informally as long as you allow him to uh, get some coffee in him. So don't prevent him from, from getting to the, the coffee. That's not kind. <coughs> That's not how we show thanks. And then we'll come together. So I, I gave this uh, about uh, yeah, 25 to 30 minutes, and then uh, Reverend Vanderward uh, will come forward, and he'll do about, uh, uh, well, you'll start at 10.50. Is that correct? Yeah. I lost the sheet that I sent to all the speakers. So. I just made something up this morning, and we're going to work with that. So 10, uh, so we get to have coffee and fellowship till 10.50.